Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. After a year and a half of disrupted learning due to the pandemic, some significant learning loss, or for those who dislike that term, foregone academic progress was widely expected. State assessments from this past spring are slowly coming out, and so far, they've painted a similar picture. Students are far behind where they should be in reading and math, and some student groups, including those who had mostly remote instruction, are further behind than others. However, we're still in the early days for these state test results, and nuanced analyses have been in short supply. Perhaps the first of those arrived last week from the state of Ohio. Dr. Vlad Kogan and Dr. Stefan Lavertu are the authors of the new report titled How the COVID-19 Pandemic Affected Student Learning in Ohio, Analysis of Spring 2021 Ohio State Tests. Given the importance and the timeliness of their findings, I asked the authors to come on today's episode to discuss their report. Both hail from The Ohio State University, where Dr. Vlad Kogan is an associate professor of political science, and Dr. Stefan Lavertu is a professor of public affairs. Vlad, Stefan, welcome to the report card. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So before we get to the meat of the report, I'm curious how you ended up writing the report in the first place. I mean, what data were you working with and what was the main question you set out to answer? Yeah, it's a great question. So this is something that we actually started thinking about in April of 2020 as the pandemic hit. And Ohio is unusual in that we have state tests in the spring, but we also have a test in the fall for third grade ELA. And so Stefan and I realized that would be one of our first opportunities in the country to get really good data on how the spring 2020 school closures affected students, at least in that one grade. And so we, uh, we approached the Ohio Department of Education. We said, you know, listen, we know you do these assessments. And we'll be happy to help you with the analysis. And that's how we got started. And we did that analysis for them in January. And as spring came with the new assessments, they, they reached out to us and said, we saw what happened in the fall. Let's see, let's see how things have been since then. Would you be willing to help us with this analysis as well? And, and just jumped at the opportunity. Okay, so you'd taken a first cut at this with some third grade test scores, and, and this makes sense. But given that third grade work that you'd done previously, what were you expecting to find when you went into this eventually? I mean, give us a preview of sort of the expectations. What were folks in the state of Ohio worried about, expecting? What was the outlook going in? Well, I, I think no one was quite sure exactly what to expect, but the intuition was that it wasn't going to be very good. We knew schools had shut down. We knew kids and families were stressed out and were experiencing economic hardship. And the hope was, at least for us in the department, was that we were going to find districts that did just fine and students that did just fine. And we were going to be able to look to them for guidance on how to handle this going forward. But really, for the most part, across the board, students had been harmed uh, from the pandemic. Yeah, the other thing I would add is, I think everybody was pretty confident that you know, after spring 2020, the numbers were not going to look so great. But I think one of the big questions was, you know, once schools did reopen in the fall, would students catch up, right? Would there be catch-up growth? And some of the assessment companies out there that do these private assessments in the fall and winter, you know, there was some suggestive evidence that maybe things were not as bad as they started out. So Renaissance, which is a company that does the STAR assessment, they had a report in the winter that said, quote, COVID-19 achievement gaps are beginning to shrink in many grades. And so I think for us, that was one of the questions, right? Things were not so great in the fall and third grade, but now, you know, schools reopened. Clearly, this was on everybody's mind. Were we going to get some catch-up growth? And so that was one of the, one of the main questions we wanted to look at is, 
you know, did, did we close the gaps and stuff all? And as Stefan mentioned, not surprisingly, given the continued disruption um, we didn't, and in fact, things got a little bit worse. Just to add on to this, we were also quite convinced that the data coming out was not so great because uh, analyses focused on those test scores that we had, but a lot of students weren't tested. And those students that weren't tested tended to be those who were most disadvantaged, those who didn't have a chance to go to school, for instance. And the other issue was that some of the data we were seeing coming out was from online tests. So students are taking these things at home and maybe they were getting some help. We had suggestive evidence that that was the case. And Ohio's data was going to give, you a, give us a chance to overcome all of these difficulties. One other question about Ohio. You know, I spent last year tracking school district closures and trying to keep an eye on that. And it strikes me that Ohio had a lot of variation across the board. Now, you know, everybody across the country shut down in spring of 2020. 20, but in this past school year, 2021, in Ohio, there were a number of districts that were open much of the year, others that were sort of, you know, part of the year open and closed, and a a few that basically were closed the entire year. So it seems to me that you had some grist for the mill to look at who was gaining or losing ground relative to other districts that might have been open more. Is that the case? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So, you know, th- there was many districts that they tend to be smaller and, and suburban districts that were open for full-time in-person learning. And there was some districts that went, went in, in and out of hybrid. And then the big urban districts, for a variety of reasons, you know, faced a lot of challenges. They did ultimately reopen, I think most of them for hybrid uh, in early March. But that was definitely one aspect of the analysis that we were most interested in is, is using some of this variation, right? Comparing students in different districts and, and of course, addressing the issue that, you know, whether they reopened or not was not random, right? So we needed to have an analytical strategy that, that accounted for the fact that, you know, that urban districts were not only more likely to be closed, but also had, um, had other challenges and probably did not experience the pandemic in the same way. So trying to disentangle right, all these things is, is tricky. And so that was certainly one of the things that we, we had hoped to try to do the best that we could. Sure. And kudos to Ohio for keeping track of which districts were open and closed across the the year, because not every state did a great job on that. Okay, so walk me through the top level results. I mean, on average, how much learning loss did we see in Ohio in reading and math during the pandemic? So we saw across the board that compared to previous years, students not, were not doing quite as well. The, the impact was larger in math than in reading um, in English language arts. So in English language arts, you know, uh, depending on grade, Students were about a third to one half of the year behind compared to where they would typically be. In math, they were between one half and really a full year behind. There were some differences across grades, but you know, once you accounted for how much students typically learn, you know, one of our big surprising findings, something that I think we didn't necessarily expect, was that older students got hit just as hard, and at least in math, even harder than younger students. And I think that that for many people was counterintuitive because many thought older students would be better positioned to, to handle things like remote learning. And I think in terms of policy, that, that is certainly, for me, one of the most important and urgent issues because these students don't have a lot of time left right, to address these impacts. So that's something that hopefully um, you know, folks will start talking about. Before we move on, let's talk for a second about what learning loss is, right? There's some folks that really don't like that term because it has negative connotations. It's a pretty useful term, but let's be specific. Stefan, what do you mean when you say learning loss? So in our analysis, to get a sense for how much students were learning from year to year, uh, we compared how students did in the last couple years to how students did in that similar span a few years ago and a few years before that. So what we're doing is comparing cohorts of students 
over that same span historically. And so, of course, students learn something from year to year and they learn something every year. But what we're concerned about is making sure that they're on the same trajectory or even better than people historically, than other students, comparable students historically, students that looked like them uh, on the, in the same grade, on the same tests. And so when we're talking about learning loss or learning decline, we're saying, compared to students historically, how well are these students doing? Is it as if they missed out on a year of learning? Is it as if they missed out on a half a year of learning compared to those prior students? And that's what we're asking ourselves. If you're actually just looking to you know, uh, see if they've learned anything, chances are they've learned quite a bit, but just not quite as much. And that's consequential. But there are a couple other things to unpack about what Vlad said. So to this point, what he's done is characterized our results in terms of how much students typically learn in fourth grade, in fifth grade, in sixth grade, in seventh grade. And if you do that, it looks like older students in higher grades in high school got hit harder. And that basically means to us that there was a bigger disruption uh, of the pandemic. However, we know that students learn more in earlier grades. That's just a fact that we know from studies across the United States compile all the test data and see how much does a third grader typically learn in English language arts? How much does a fifth grader typically learn? How much does an eighth grader typically learn? Those are the benchmarks Vlad is using uh, to characterize whether it's a year's worth of learning that someone's lost or a half year's worth of learning. However, if what you're really concerned with is maximizing learning, then we don't want to make those conversions, right? Then we do want to focus on those younger kids that learn more because they really did lose out on more achievement. And so a lot of folks will point to the fact that achievement scores are predictive of economic growth, of individual income, of all sorts of social benefits. So if that's what you're concerned about, yes, it's very concerning when there's disruptions to younger students because there's more learning loss compared to previous cohorts. But if what you're concerned about is which students got disrupted the most, then you want to benchmark like Vlad just did. And you want to ask yourself, is it as if they had a half year's left of less learning? Is it like they had one year less learning? Okay. So these are some steep declines, but I assume the drops weren't equal across the board and not just by grade level. What were some other differences that you saw in the results across student groups? So we saw the biggest differences across students really in English language arts. And there we saw that disadvantaged students really suffered the most relative to you know, their achievement in prior years. And really black students, Latino students, and low-income students were, were hit particularly hard. In math, you know, it was a little bit more nuanced. In earlier grades, we saw many of the same patterns. But in math, really, the, the learning impacts were very large across the board. And, and especially as you got into the higher grades, you know, it, it wasn't the case that disadvantaged students were particularly harder. There's also some differences across mode of learning that, that I think we'll get to in a few minutes. But across student subgroups, really race and socioeconomic status and really other measures of disadvantage. So think about disability, think about English learner status and English language arts. There was pretty, uh, pretty sizable differences. So let me ask about some concerns some folks might have when they're not having read the report, but they may think, well, didn't you have some attrition in some of these groups year over year? I mean, how do we know that the tests were comparable? I mean, 
of the complaints that I'm sure you expected and sort of put some measures in place to, to do checks on, why should listeners or readers have confidence that these are actually reflecting trends that we would see if we weren't in a pandemic year? Well, I think we did lots of things to make sure that these results are robust and not sensitive to the sorts of things that you're talking about. And I'll let Vlad jump in with some others, but some things that come to mind, and this is something that Vlad pushed for a lot, is is that when we were comparing gains from 2019 to 2021 for this cohort of students that experienced a pandemic to previous cohorts from 2017 and 2019 or 2016 to 2018, these other two-year cohorts, we made sure the results weren't sensitive to which cohort we were comparing it to. And that's important to your point about exams being comparable, because if the exams weren't comparable, we probably detect some differences as we compared them to different prior year cohorts. The results weren't very sensitive at all to that. Qualitatively, uh, the the results were similar. Uh, We also account uh, for the population of students we're comparing from year to year. And so for every student, we can observe their prior achievements, we can observe their socioeconomic status, we can can observe what their district of residence is, which is very predictive of their socioeconomic status. Uh, We can observe all of these things. And essentially, the the, the statistical analysis that we do compares nearly identical students from prior cohorts to those same students uh, in the current cohort. Yeah, I'll just jump in. So, you know, that is why we, we start with 2016. So 2016, we're higher change tests. So we definitely wanted to make sure we were looking at tests that were the same over time. And as Stefan said, we were, you know, one of our concerns was clearly some students left the public school system. So the composition of students changed. And also uh, participation of tests declined somewhat, although much less in Ohio than in other states. And so if, exactly as Stefan described, we wanted to be very careful about accounting for the fact that students tested this year look different and probably would have tested differently in prior years as well. And so a lot of the under the hood statistics really get it, got at that, at that compositional change to really net out everything except for the pandemic and really isolate the impact of the pandemic itself. So one of the things that pandemic schooling immediately brings to mind is, well, what did that look like? And as we already said, in some districts, there's going to be more in-person learning. Uh, Some students were going to be in a hybrid environment for much longer, others much longer remote. What were the associations that you could draw out between the mode of learning and the lost learning or the, the, the achievement test result over time? So I, I, I want to be careful to make sure that I said that outset, you know, the data that we have is on what mode of learning the district offered, um, not necessarily on what mode of learning individual students took advantage of. And we know many districts, although they were in person, had some, uh, some distance learning opportunities. And so we don't know for any given student what they had. So I'm, I'm going to talk about kind of in broad strokes and what was being offered. And you know, across all the grades, we see that students who were in-person or districts that offered in-person um, learning opportunities most of the year suffered less. So the impacts of the pandemic were substantially smaller. Again, there was you know, some important differences across grade, uh, grades and subjects, but I, say, I think that's the, the, the general story. And in third grade, you know, uh, it's particularly important because you know, one of the concerns, is, as, as people have said as well, you know, maybe districts were not in person because the pandemic impacted them differently. So is it really mode of learning or is it some of, the, some of these other things that caused them to be distanced? And so here, I think the Ohio data is particularly good because we have weekly, we observe uh, the mode of learning. And in third grade, we have tests that take place twice a year. And the first round was in late October, early November. 
And then the second round was in April. And so we take advantage of that and really try to get at exactly this question. And if it's really mode of learning, then the mode of learning before the October testing cycle would not predict growth after October, right? And that's essentially what we find, that, that using this monthly data and using the precise timing of the state tests, we really see that it, it seems to be the case that being in person really does um, affect how much students learn. And again, third grade ELA, which is the only grade and subject where we can do this, our estimate is learning online, um, students to learn about a third less than they would normally in fully in-person learning. What about the continuum between in-person learning and remote learning? I mean, was this a situation where in-person learning and hybrid learning are more or less on par and then remote sort of falls down precipitously? Or is it the situation where in-person is, you know, not too bad, hybrid is a little worse, and remote is then about the same amount worse in terms of learning loss? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And so there, there are some differences across grade levels and subjects. And so one of the complicating factors is, unfortunately, you know, the, the data we have is not great. So the way um, districts reported hybrid learning, for some districts, it meant half the students learning in person half the time and the other half learning the other half the time. Uh, in some districts, it meant younger students learning in person 100% of the time and older students completely online. And so we're not exactly sure you know, that the, the differences across grades are really due to differences in mode versus of, you know, what hybrid means in those grades. But I, I think it's fair to say in ELA, we definitely see that very clear pattern that 100% in person is better than hybrid and hybrid is definitely better than 100% remote. You know, in math, again, th there are some differences across grades that probably have to do with, with the change in measurement. Uh, and so it's a little bit more messy. But I think across the board, we can definitely say that you know, 100% in-person is better than, than either hybrid or, or remote. Okay, so achievement is down across the board, and we know that there's differences by learning mode, but uh, I can certainly see some people saying, well, I don't know if you've captured the, the causal connection between the pandemic, the pandemic-specific attributes, or whether it's the remote and hybrid learning and these declines. So... You know, I'm asking about the causal connection. Stefan, how confident are you that you've actually captured causality here? I, I'm actually quite confident. And I hardly ever say that I'm, I'm quite confident that we've captured causality. Uh, in terms of mode of learning, and, and if you mean by causality, you know, are we capturing uh, the impact that schools have had based on their mode of learning? I'd say I think so. And I'm going to give you a, a few reasons why. One, is we were before the pandemic, we were already accumulating a, a lot of evidence and a lot of it was in higher ed with distance learning, but we started getting some at, at K-12 level as well, that distance learning is, is difficult for students, but particularly for students who are disadvantaged uh, in some way, right? You can imagine that if you're trying to learn at a distance, you need time management skills, you need study skills, uh, you need technological resources, maybe you need a quiet place to work or study, and it, the, the evidence in the higher ed level is pretty robust. And we already knew in Ohio that our virtual schools weren't doing so great, that students who were attending those schools weren't doing so great. So even though, if, even then at the K-12 level before the pandemic, we're seeing there was this relationship and, and, and the effect sizes are pretty similar and they're distributed in, in, in similar ways. So students will do a little bit better in ELA and much worse in math. Uh, so from the beginning, we have this strong theoretical prior that this is going to be the case. Then we do this third grade analysis and eventually this latest analysis, and we see 
these cross-sectional differences across, dis across districts uh, based on mode of learning. Now we know that disadvantaged students were more likely to experience uh, remote learning. And so you ask yourself, can we disentangle this uh, in some way? But still the effect sizes across different districts are just as we'd expect theoretically based on the academic literature. But then as Vlad said, we have this beautiful thing in Ohio. We have these third grade tests that we have in the fall and in the spring. And we can estimate how much remote learning students have been exposed to or how long the districts they attend had been engaging in remote learning. And so every little increment is associated with a bigger decline in achievement. So it's, uh, uh, we can do this on a weekly basis. Every additional week is another 0.01 standard deviation decline or something like that. And then we have something called a placebo test in econometrics and, and social science research, as you know very well, uh, Nat, we have all these ways of testing uh, whether something is plausibly causal. And what Vlad was describing uh, a moment ago was that we have such a placebo test because what we can do is say, okay, the, the mode of instruction right before they took these exams in early fall, as opposed to when they took the exams in, in October or, or, or whatever, is that predictive of their learning gains for that year? They're not. The only thing that's predictive of how much they learned was the mode of learning that we measured when we observed the decline. And so you take the theory, you take the cross-sectional results, uh, you take the third grade reading, and then you do these sorts of validity checks it's airtight, right? I mean, it's pretty hard to dent this one, I think. What do you think, Vlad? Yeah, I agree with you. And I, I would say the other, to me, most convincing thing is before the pandemic, the districts that were more remote versus more in-person, you know, their, their growth trajectories were not that different, right? So this is not some sort of pre-existing difference. This is something that, that just emerged during this past year. Yeah, so two social scientists willing to say, yeah, I think we've captured causality is not the norm on, uh, on a lot of big studies like this. So mark that down, listeners. Let me ask what you've learned about what happened in Ohio and what it means for the country. So Ohio isn't completely different from the rest of the country in the variety of district approaches during the pandemic. They have a diverse student body. I mean, this isn't Hawaii and it's not, you know, Utah, which are, are not necessarily representative. But is Ohio likely to be an outlier compared to the rest of the country? Or do you think that it's somewhat, you know, representative of what's likely gone widely? And again, I won't hold you to the, the same parameters and, and strictness I asked uh, in the last question about causality, but this is just the basic question of how generalizable do you think these patterns are? You know, it, it seems like based on everything that we've seen, this is pretty generalizable. So Connecticut over the weekend, we saw a report from their Department of Education that was also very carefully done and finds very similar patterns. Other states, I think Georgia and Tennessee, Idaho have recently released their, their test score data. Again, they, they're not able to account for some of the compositional things that, that we were able to do in Ohio. But, um, you know, the, the general patterns were quite similar. There's differences across racial groups, differences across economic disadvantage groups, and differences across mode of learning. So, you know, what, what we see in Ohio, I think, is seems to be the, the story everywhere that was able to collect the data and able to analyze it. So that's my impression, at least. Yeah, I mean, it, going back to our confidence about the quality of, of the analysis and, and where 
uh, it applies. It's really remarkable. When we came out with the first analysis, which was ahead of, of most other states, of all other states, as far as I recall, you know, you have some doubts. What if there was some noise here? What if there's something we did in the modeling and it's sensitive to that? And again, as a social scientist, you know uh, that a lot of the results that we get out there are sensitive to those sorts of things. And what we've noticed as states keep releasing their reports is that the story is exactly the same. It's always the same. I will argue about whether they're, uh, they account for certain things very well, like students that were missing from the test pool. I think Detroit had 11% participation rate, which will you know, minimize the declines. It'll make it look like these districts did better because the students who took the tests are those who experience the biggest gains, right? Or the lowest declines. But bar such small deviations, it's across the board over and over and over again, this is confirmed. And that's why I think we both feel very confident in saying, don't panic. It, I know that we've got a surge. I know that things are not looking great right now, but we also know for a fact how bad it can be to keep kids out of school. And every time a new report comes out, we, we know that it applies across the country. Let me ask what your results might mean for pandemic era reforms or post-pandemic reforms to education. And I'm thinking mainly of remote learning here, right? Remote learning has been tasted by a much larger portion of the nation's students than ever before. To look at opinion polls, there's a lot of parents that kind of like it. You know, they like some things about it. These results sort of weigh against that that potential that uh, some parents might say, oh, well, you know, remote learning is kind of nice in a lot of ways. Maybe not. Should should we view these data as a sign that virtual or remote education isn't going to work for most students? I think my sense is, and Stefan is exactly right, that I think we knew that already. We knew that before the pandemic. And, and you, know, I, you know, one of the best pieces of evidence that I see, uh, there was a nice uh, randomized experiment over the fall at West Point. And so this, these, are, uh, these are West Point cadets, right? Some of the most motivated and disciplined students and in their economics program, they randomly assigned students to attend class in person or remotely, and they found results that were quite similar to ours. And so to me, that says, you know, it's, it's possible to do remote learning well, but it takes a very, very unique kind of student. Um, and so I think for the average student, again, it's just such a, you know, it's, it requires so much self-discipline, so much time management. And I think the flip side of it is learning is inherently a social process. And I think as someone that taught remote remotely for part of the last year, it's just so hard to create that online, I, which is not to say that some of the tools of remote learning cannot be integrated into regular education. I think some of the you know, personalized aspects, you know, the ability to go back and rewatch something that you, that you learned in person, I think those are all great assets. And I think hopefully it'll be great additions to traditional education. But you know, for me, it's very clear that for most students, it's just not a great substitute. And the thing that, that worries me, that scares me is you know, that when you make remote learning available, we have not had a good track record of it only attracting the students that can do well, right? So that's the challenge, right? Is I think it works well for some students, but when you make it available, those are not the only students that sign up. Those are not the only families that take advantage. And so I think if you think about policy going forward, we really need to have the incentive structure correct. We need to have policies so that schools that are offering these options really are careful about who they're offering it to and then be monitoring to make sure that students are doing well and, and making sure that it's working for those who take advantage of it. And I think that part of it, we, we still have not figured out either at the K to 12 level or even the university level, you know, of making sure that 
once students sign up that, that you know, we, we monitor and we hold their hand and we make sure that they get out of the experience what we want them to get out of it. Stefan, is, is Vlad being too hard on uh, remote education? Well, I, I think there's a lot of merit in everything he said. And on one hand, there are moments where that's how I think. Uh, but then there are moments where I think, who am I to restrict or who is anyone uh, to restrict this option? We don't know what families are balancing. And we're talking about English language arts and math here. And what else uh, might they be doing at home that could help them in the long term? Uh, and so I err on the side of allowing people these options, but we need to make very clear to parents what the implications of this option are in terms of the t- types of supports students would need. I think that districts who provide this option and allow students to freely choose it, it's incumbent upon them to communicate the expectations for parents. There's some co-production, we call it, right, in in public management uh, here to providing the resources students need to do it, the technology, and maybe providing more structure. Uh, So I, I suspect that going forward, virtual education might involve a little bit more structure that could help those students. But you look at the achievement results and what we know about achievement being a predictor of how well students do later in life in terms of income, in terms of economic growth for states, it's really hard to argue with what Vlad just said. So I have a couple of questions before I let you go, but, you know, we've sort of talked about these in sort of cold terms that, you know, such and such percent of a standard deviation, and these are big declines, but how do you give to sort of lay people an understanding of just how big the declines you're seeing are? I mean, is this learning loss that is a stutter step and that is likely to be caught up over, you know, a good solid year? Are these stumbles that are likely never to be recovered by most students? I mean, just how big of a problem is the learning loss that we're seeing? You know, this is an argument that, that actually I got into on Twitter with, with Matt Barnum at Chalkbeat, who's a very, very smart education journalist. When we first came out with our report in third grade, and he said, look, you know, 0.2 standard deviations, we can catch that up. And I think in, in theory, that's true, right? We have educational interventions, uh, things like, you know, high dose intensive tutoring that have shown to be able to close those kind of gaps. But in practice, I think we, we have very few cases of these kinds of programs being ruled out at scale with fidelity and, and working. So we just don't have a track record as a society, as an educational system of taking achievement gaps on, on this order of magnitude and doing a good job of closing them. And so for me, that is concerning, which is yeah, not to say that we can't do it. And, and the, you know, the, some of the stimulus dollars provided more resources than districts have, have had in a long time. So hopefully they're spending that money um, wisely. But based on what we've known in the past, it's going to be a challenge. It's going to be a challenge. And I think we have to be single-minded in our focus in addressing those challenges, especially for the older kids where we don't have a lot of time, right? Closing an achievement gap of that size over 10 years, I think, is more doable than closing it over, over two years for some of these 10th graders. Uh, and so I think we need to prioritize you know, how we go about doing it and, and make sure that we do have a concrete plan and not just kind of hope and wish that districts figure it out. That's a great way to benchmark it, Vlad, just to talk about, well, is 0.2 standard deviations a lot? And to say, well, it is when you think about the fact that we don't have interventions that allow you to get 0.2 standard deviations easily. I think that's one of the best ways to benchmark this. So, you know, we invest all this money and all this time into trying to figure out ways of increasing student achievement. And 0.2 standard deviations is considered a very large impact. And uh, so that's one way to benchmark it. Another way to benchmark it that 
gets dicey, but that people have intuition for is income. And we know from a couple of studies that were very rigorous, uh, that when you have a teacher that helps you gain about that much over the course of a year or two, that you're going to feel that in terms of your income in your 20s and 30s. And I don't remember the exact figure and I hesitate to quote it, but you can actually translate it to dollars earned. And so you can imagine as this compounds, and if, if you know districts are tempted to do this again this year, as this compounds, that ends up being real uh, income, real well-being down the road. So it's tangible, it's hard to, to quantify, but I think Vlad's intuition to say, well, let's flip this around and say, do we know of interventions that allow you to gain what we've just lost in a year or two? Not really, not at scale. Yeah, certainly not at scale. And it looks like we got a problem that uh, is at scale. All right, so before I let you go, I'm gonna really push you to read the tea leaves and look forward. There's a lot of ground to cover in this school year to hopefully at least tread, tread water on these learning trajectories and, and, and hopefully make up some ground. And I understand that when I say, are we going to make up ground or should we brace for more disappointing results? That's going to be, the answer is, well, that depends. Of course, you're academics, right? You're going to tell me that it depends. So my question is, what do you think it's going to mostly depend on, at least in terms of how schools operate over the course of the next year? Vlad? So I think for me, the biggest question right now is quarantines, right? Our ability to, whether it's make up lost ground or really keep students from falling behind further is really depends on our ability to keep them in class in person. And I think so far this school year, um, things are looking, looking scary. You know, uh, Burbio has their report weekly and uh, something like over a thousand schools have, have gone remote because of outbreaks. And so I think it's going to depend a lot on our ability to keep students in class. And that is going to depend very um, heavily on policy on, you know, what are the criteria for quarantines? Do we send the whole class home when there's one outbreak? Do we test students, let them stay as long as they keep testing negative? I think those kinds of policy decisions are going to be key. And I think it, it's too early to know, but what we're seeing so far is, is worrying. And I think there's many places in the country that, that need to come up with a better plan than they have now. Stefan? Yeah, I've got to agree with Vlad. It's really about can you get students back in school and what measures can you take to make sure that happens? There seems to be some anecdotal evidence uh, that there's some COVID spread in districts that aren't very serious about mitigation measures, about just making sure kids are masked and if the windows can be opened, open the windows and, and that sort of thing. I, I think it's about districts taking it very seriously that if you want to have in-person learning, if you want to address uh, these learning losses, you're going to have to take COVID seriously and, and mitigate. Stefan, Vlad, it's a great report. Thanks for doing the work. It's important. And thanks for coming on the report card to talk to us about it. Thanks for having yeah. us on. Thanks for listening to the report card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guests, Dr. Vlad Kogan and Dr. Stefan Lavertu. We'll include a link to their report on Ohio students' test scores in the show notes. Of course, I want to thank our producers, Matt Rice and Wesley Armstrong, who make this podcast possible. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, take a minute to leave us a review. It helps other folks find the show. Send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's it for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus. 